Continuing our series in 1 John, we turn this evening to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us, he that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him, herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. I call your attention this evening to 
the verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. The text that we consider this evening, beloved, is a rather lengthy consideration of a profound subject, the love of God. The inspired apostle would have us contemplate, and that means the Holy Spirit would have us contemplate God himself as the source of all love. So we are brought to the revelation of the very being of God. Verse 8, for God is love. Note well, love doesn't define God. God defines love. That's even a matter of emphasis in the original because there's a definite article, not before the word love, but before God. The God is love. So God himself defines what love is. But he does so not only by giving to us to see himself as love, to see him who is love, but who manifests that love, and who bestows that love upon human beings, those whom he has chosen to be partakers of that love. And so we are told in verse 10, herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. But in addition... This text reveals that the nature of the love of God is such that it not only has its source in him, but that it flows from him as a fountain, not only toward us, but through us. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And so it is that everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. And verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So I call your attention to 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11, under the theme, Radiating Divine Love. We consider, first of all, this divine love. Secondly, the manifestation of this love. And finally, the radiation of this love. 
So we begin first by considering this divine love of which our text speaks. What does it mean that God is love and that love is only and always out of him? In the first place, it's important that we have a biblical understanding of that concept, love, because it's common to define love in human terms and put the emphasis then especially on emotions or feelings. Or people try to justify their rejection of God by imposing upon him their own conception of love. So you might have someone confront you and say, if God is really a God of love, how does he let this happen? How can he let little children be murdered in a mass killing? How can he let the butcheries of war happen? But you see, there's a wrong conception of God behind those questions. Let's look at what the Bible says about this highest concept of love, agape, or agapao, the verb. We're treating a New Testament passage, but we should take into account what the Old Testament reveals about the concept love. There we find two terms, especially, that are used to express the idea of love. And the first term comes from a word that means to join or to fasten together and includes the idea of delight. So from that we learn that love emphasizes a relationship that binds together in delight. That's the term used in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. And then follows verse 8, but because the Lord loved you, And there we have the second term for love, that which expresses the living action of love rather than its essence as a bond of fellowship. That living action of love is a a reaching for, a breathing after. Well, in the New Testament, These ideas come together in one word. There is another term for love in the New Testament from which the city Philadelphia gets its name, the so-called city of brotherly love. That's the love of affection. But the word love that's consistently used in in the New Testament To express the highest form of love, the term which is used throughout 1 John, is a term that has its source in the will. It's not merely an emotion, not a feeling. 
It's an act of the will. In addition, in Colossians 3, verse 8, we are told that love is the bond of perfectness. It is a love, therefore, that exists in the realm of moral perfection, whether that be within God himself or in and among his redeemed, sanctified people. There is no love in darkness. There is no love in spiritual death. John has already made that clear. We've seen that in the earlier chapters of this epistle. Our love, then, is a spiritual virtue and activity of the will that always seeks the spiritual welfare of its object. When the text says, therefore, that God is love, it means love is always of God. It's always of God. And that love is directed, first of all, within himself. There is perfect love among the three persons of the Holy Trinity, the one divine being. And it's important for us to understand that. Love is not defined by God's relationship to humans. That way of thinking has led to the widely embraced error that God loves everybody. We shall see in verse 16, God is love. The eternal I am is love. Before the world was created, before there was ever a human being, God's love flowed within himself, and it never ceases. The perfectly holy God seeks himself. He maintains his holiness. He seeks his own glory. He has no need for any object outside himself as the object of love. But that truth being established in the Bible, also in our text, reveals a wonderful thing. God has chosen to reveal himself as the source and fountain of love. Does that mean he loves everybody? No, not at all. Because he loves himself, He loves with sovereign determination. We saw that just minutes ago from Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. That's also the word of God in Romans 9, with reference to Jacob and Esau. Before the children were born, neither had done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. God said to their mother, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. In addition, God makes plain he cannot love the wicked who oppose him and would rob him of his glory. It is God's love for himself 
and his own glory that explains a text such as Psalm 11, verse 5, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. But God reveals himself as the source and fountain of love to his people in Christ. His love has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 verse 5. And so our text tonight speaks not only of God's love, speaks of our love. And that's consistent with what John has been writing in this epistle. Not only did he begin the third chapter with the grand exclamation, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. But he said in verse 14 of that chapter, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. So as we stand before this revelation of divine love, we see that this love which is in God himself is a love that radiates from his own divine being. This divine love has been manifested toward us, we are told in verses 9 and 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God manifested his love when he sent his only begotten son into the world. That's John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That love that existed in God from eternity. That love that needed no object other than himself, he has manifested according to his eternal decree and sovereign purpose. He has manifested his love to reveal the glory of his grace in the salvation of unworthy sinners. When God defines what love is, he does so in terms of his redemptive grace, his sacrificial giving. It's love given to someone who needs to be loved not to someone who is attracting that love. 
Romans 5 verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John 4 verse 10 points to the need that was ours. That need is found in the word sins. Romans 5 verse 8 makes it even more personal. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That term sinners marks us as particularly ugly. Sinners are those who deliberately do the opposite of what God created us to do. God created us with the calling to love him with our whole being, with all our heart and soul and mind, and to glorify him in everything we do. Sinners do the opposite. Instead of seeking God, they seek themselves. We do everything to provoke him. And those sins which mark us as sinners have to be removed. They have to be paid for. That's the idea of propitiation. God so loved us, while we were yet sinners... He sent his only begotten son to be the propitiation for our sins. He gave his only begotten son to be the sacrifice for our sins. That's the manifestation of the sacrificial love of God. Amazing love. Moreover, that divine love is continuous in its manifestation. God further manifests his perfect love when he glorifies his Son. Verse 9, after all, speaks of God sending his Son into the world that we might live through him. Not only was the love of God manifested when God sent his only begotten son in the likeness of our sinful flesh and died on the cross as the propitiation to pay for our debt, our sins, to cover them before God. He sent that son, that only begotten, that we might live through him. And implied then is that he didn't merely make that life possible, by his death on the cross, but that he gives that life by taking us into his own life and fellowship. Jesus is the living Lord. The one who not only died in our place and on our behalf, but who was raised again. He lives, and we live through him. God raised his son. He raised him who had made the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. He raised him as the firstfruits. So this 
This divine love is manifested in the ongoing work of the exalted Christ. More specifically, as we commemorate on the day of Pentecost, this divine love is manifested in the exalted Christ, giving us his spirit by whom we know his love. That knowledge is the knowledge of faith. Spirit-worked faith by the Holy Spirit. We hear the testimony of the Father's love for us, and we respond, Abba, Father. By the Spirit's work, we know the wonder of divine love and Christ's payment for our sins, but also by the Holy Spirit. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts so that we live in that love. And thus there's another important aspect of that love that our text calls our attention to. What I refer to as the radiation of this divine love. And my third point tonight, just so you know, is not going to be very brief. This is an important aspect of the text, and one that in our day certainly needs development. When I speak of the radiation of divine love, I use that term radiation with purpose. To radiate is to have a source which gives or spreads forth something. The sun, for example, radiates light. The wood-burning stove in the mountain cabin is the source from which the rays of heat radiate and spread out to heat the entire cabin. So when we speak of the love of God, we speak of a love that radiates in a wonderful way. And this is a point of emphasis in John's first epistle and in the text that we are considering this evening. Let's hear verses 7 and 8 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And then verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, I didn't take verses 12 and 13 as part of my text tonight, but they also speak to this truth. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, And his love is perfected in us. And that idea of perfected is that it accomplishes his purpose in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us. Because he hath given us of his spirit. And this same truth was expressed by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 when he reported to the church in Colossae 
that his colleague, Epaphras, a faithful minister of the Christ, had, in the words of the apostle, declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Now there's an interesting phenomenon that's brought out in this text and its context, something which is worth our consideration. It has to do with how this divine love is radiated in and through us. John has spoken of our life as the children of God, those who've been taken into the fellowship of his own family life, his his covenant life. Because God is love, it stands to reason that our life is also one of dwelling in love. And so he writes in verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. We know, as scripture reveals throughout, that the covenant life that we enjoy with our Heavenly Father is everlasting life. To use another biblical analogy, the marriage of Christ and his church, the elect bride, is unbreakable. It's unbreakable because that salvation that established that marriage is determined, accomplished, and maintained by God himself And that, according to his sovereign, eternal, and unchangeable decree of election in Christ. The children of God, therefore, are inevitably defined by the love of God. They are partakers of divine love. They abide in Christ. Again, with that unbreakable bond that depends nothing upon us. Why then does John issue the command? Beloved, let us love one another. And then adds in verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Why does he write in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You see, this is similar to what we have faced earlier in this epistle when the apostle spoke to those who abide in Christ, those who are the children of God, and he issued the command, abide in him. A command which demands obedience. What is this phenomenon? Does the apostle set forth a truth of God's work and then make it conditional upon what we do? Are we to reject these exhortations or downplay their significance because they would put too much emphasis on 
man's responsibility and man's activity, man's obedience, and therefore denigrate God's sovereign work in our salvation. We as Protestant Reformed churches have embraced God's absolute sovereignty and salvation as the truth of God's inspired word. We also, through historical controversy concerning conditional theology, have rejected such teachings that make salvation in any way dependent upon man. So how are we to view such admonitions that call us to obedience? Beloved, let us love one another. The Apostle Paul gave the same admonition in Ephesians chapter 5. He wrote in verses 1 and 2, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. That sacrifice that Christ offered was his own atoning sacrifice. It saved us. Why then the admonition? To mention yet another. When Jesus told his disciples in John 13 that he was soon to leave them, he said to them, John 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And he added, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. If we abide in God's love, what's the point of these admonitions? We can immediately dispel the idea that these admonitions are only to expose our sinfulness, to point us to our need for Christ. Or that they are mere statements of what God will do, not telling us what we must do. That would be a denial of the plain words of the text that I just read. As well as a denial of the truth set forth in our canons of door, in the third and fourth heads of doctrine, article 17, that grace is conferred by means of admonition. To have a correct understanding of the place of these admonitions in relationship to God's sovereign work, we really have to go back to creation, to the creation of man in particular. Because of that creation of man, you remember God had a conversation within himself 
before creating man. And God said within himself, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us shape and form him to be reflective of us. Well, God's image is not physical. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 both speak of the contents of that image in terms of true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But we might also say that those three spiritual virtues reveal man as a creature specially formed by God to live in personal relationship with him. No other creature in all the creation was formed in such a way. Man was created a thinking, willing creature, a rational, moral creature, in order personally to relate to God, his creator, and enjoy his fellowship, but also, according to God's sovereign purpose, to relate to other people, male and female, to his wife and children, first of all. So to tie it into our text, man was created with the capacity to love God and others, and that as an act of his will. Fellowship with God and others would come to expression in that way, even as God's love comes to expression in the interpersonal relationships within the Godhead, and to the objects of his love in Christ Jesus. It is true, as you know, that man lost the contents of that image in the fall. He lost that true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But let's not forget the wonder of salvation involves the restoration of that image of God in the redeemed, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. So that being in Christ Jesus, we are restored to that fellowship with the Holy One which also comes to expression in the interpersonal relationship that is exercised within the framework of receiving and giving love. But that's accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And it's fitting in God's providence that that we consider this text today as we commemorate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The Apostle John 
lived fully aware and thankful for the spirit of Pentecost, the spirit of the exalted Christ. We've seen that expressed before in the last verse of chapter 3, for example, and we see it in verse 13 of chapter 4, hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. We have to understand the way the Apostle Paul was thinking. Because we have to be thinking the same way. John knew the wonder of being taken into the life and fellowship of the living, loving God. He knew that his salvation was entirely of grace by Christ and was his through faith. But John also understood that the experience of that covenant fellowship with God and the joy of his fellowship, which is by faith, comes also only in a particular way of life. A life which reflects the love of God. And specifically, the Holy Spirit accomplishes that work and brings it to expression in us and through us. He brings to expression in us and through us that that radiation of divine love by the use of means. God brings to completion his sovereign work in us by the use of commands. His spirit working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So the warnings and promises, the commands and admonitions of Scripture, many of which explicitly precede resulting blessings of God, are not conditions that God sets before us that we are required to fulfill if we are to enjoy the blessings of salvation and the joy of his fellowship, but rather they are the means that he uses and by which he has chosen to work to give us the fullness of joy in his fellowship, the fellowship of his life and love, and apart from which, we cannot experience the joy of his fellowship. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. So to use an illustration, Luke 1 came to mind. And the just and devout man named Simeon, who 
waited for the consolation of Israel in the coming of the promised Messiah. And we read in Luke 1 verse 26, And it was revealed to him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. So suppose Simeon stopped eating. And one of his loved ones or a friend saw that he wasn't eating and said, Simeon, are you not well? You're not eating. And you're looking sickly. And suppose Simeon responds, Well, the Holy Spirit told me I shall not see death until I see the Lord's Christ. Now you realize how foolish that illustration is. Simeon could not respond that way. He knew that God sustains earthly life by giving us necessary food and drink and for our bodies and necessary sleep. He uses means to strengthen us and to maintain us, to sustain us. But the same is true for our spiritual life. And therefore, for the enjoyment of the fellowship of his love, he has ordained the means of grace to produce that fruit in us, that work in us. He calls us to love. Even as he calls us to repentance and faith, obedience, and so on, as the way in which we live in the joy of his fellowship. But in calling us to love, he also works that in us. We're not able to boast in that love. We don't even think about boasting in that love. In our obedience, in our repentance, or any other saving benefit we enjoy as partaker of Christ's life and love, we can't boast in God's sanctifying work. But neither do we ignore the commands that God has ordained to produce that work. So we confess in Article 17 of the third and fourth heads of the, of the canons, be it far from either instructors or instructed to presume to tempt God in the church by separating what he of his good pleasure hath intimately joined together. For grace is conferred by means of admonition. And the more readily we perform our duty, the more imminent usually is this blessing of God working in us. And the more directly is his work advanced. Now notice, to whom alone all the glory both of means and of their saving fruit and efficacy 
is forever due. Amen. When we understand this, then we, uh, then we maintain the balance of biblical Christianity. And we avoid two opposing errors. We avoid a legalism which would look to ourselves as accomplishing any aspect of our salvation. And we avoid falling into a lawlessness that would reject or devalue the commands of the Word of God. But positively and more importantly, we not only see the wonder of God's love manifested to us in the gift of His only begotten Son, we hear His call. Let us love one another. And so the unseen God manifests Himself in the love of His children. And so that love of God radiates into the relationships in which we stand. Even as it radiates in the relationships as members of his family in, in Jesus Christ. So we seek one another's spiritual welfare. Not counting the personal costs. And so God is glorified even in our actions. Glorified by the work of His Holy Spirit in us. Amen. Gracious Father, apply Thy word to our hearts by Thy Holy Spirit that we love one another, that we love Thee above all, and that we live constantly in the knowledge of Thy work for Jesus' sake. Amen.